Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So there was a recent consumer confidence survey that said that 87% of Democrats think the economy is good <laughs> or like positive sentiment, while only 37% of Republicans did. And you noted that this was the largest gulf in terms of perception of the economic trajectory between parties that you had ever seen, 50%. But then even more troubling is that this wasn't only on one side or, or the other, that back in 2019, the Gulf actually cut the other direction, where Republicans thought the economy was great and Democrats thought it sucked by a margin of 47%. So the University of Michigan has been doing this consumer survey for like 60, 70 years. They basically ask a bunch of people, how do you think the economy is going? And since the 1980s, they've been breaking it down, Democrat, Republican, Independent, right? Between 1980 and 2017, there had never been more than a 30-point gap between the way Democrats and Republicans saw the economy, right? And since 2017, it's just gone completely berserk. That if a Republican is, is the president, just about other Republicans say the economy is great, and a lot of the Democrats say the economy is bad, and then when a Democrat is president, all the Democrats say that the economy is good and all the Republicans say the economy is bad. That's only a slight exaggeration, but that's basically what we started to see. We used to partially decide whether or not we thought our party was doing a good job by first looking to the economy. But now we decide if the economy is good by first looking to the party that's in power. Ideology is the pair of glasses that everybody is wearing. And as a result, you might not as well even ask people how good the economy is. You might as well just tell them, hey, do you like Biden or not? Because once once I hear the answer to that question, everything else that I ask you about reality will simply flow downstream of that comment. This week on the podcast, one of the people I turn to to understand economics, technology, and the media, he is the author of Hitmakers, the host of the podcast, brand new, Plain English, and a staff writer at The Atlantic, which is one of my favorite news sources, Derek Thompson joins us on the podcast. It is a thrill to welcome to the podcast one of the most talented economics and technology and culture journalists around, 
host of the brand new podcast on the Rigor Network, Plain English. You probably know him from The Atlantic, Derek Thompson. Welcome, Derek. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Derek, I reference your work all the time when I'm trying to figure out what's going on in the economy. Uh, You know, you and I have known each other for a while. You've written several books about different aspects of uh, the hitmaker economy. So I'm going to lead off with a question on everyone's mind, which I'm sure people ask you at cocktail parties and the rest of it, much to your chagrin. What the hell is going on with this economy? <laughs> like, what, what is going on? Like, where are we right now? It's so funny. So I we just recorded a podcast about this. And um, my one sentence summary of where things stand is all the good news has an asterisk and all the bad news has a silver lining. So you pick some piece of good news. Like, uh, look, unemployment is lower now than it was in any month of 2016. That's an extraordinary achievement after the pandemic. At the same time, one of the reasons why unemployment is so low is because we're missing six, seven million people from the labor force. Uh, There is a large number of people who retired early because they're afraid of the pandemic. There are people who are waiting out the pandemic on the sidelines because they don't feel comfortable working or they really hate a job they just quit. Or maybe they have a financial cushion, and that's obviously good. We don't want to force people to work starvation jobs. Uh, But there's a piece of good news that has a little bit uh, of an asterisk. Then all the bad news has a silver lining. Like, look, inflation is real. And it's the highest that it's been in uh, a long time, maybe more than 30 years. Uh, It's higher when when you look at like gasoline prices, the year over year inflation rate is one of the highest prints on record. At the same time, the high inflation rate is partly an evidence of some good things that are happening. A demand is so much higher than we thought it would be maybe a year ago. People are spending a lot. Retail numbers are up. Restaurants are roaring back. The supply chain can't yet meet all of this demand. And as a result, it's cashing out as high inflation. So the way that I think about this economy is that, you know, in the 1970s, we invented this portmanteau of a stagflation economy. Yeah. Jimmy Carter, stagflation. That, that's like the, yep. the, the great fear. Yeah. This is not stagflation. This is kaboomflation. This is a booming economy that is also seeing inflation. And I think it's really important to distinguish uh, the, the the bad growth that we saw in the 1970s from the accelerating growth that we're seeing right now coming out of the pandemic. A lot of good stuff is happening, but it all has an asterisk. Growflation. We need a term. Uh, you know, I guess if you're the Biden administration, you just want to, to avoid this term stagflation and Jimmy Carter redux, which I, I think is the vibe. Uh, unfortunately, we'll return to that uh, a little bit later on. I'm not sure if kaboomflation is going to catch, though, Derek. I got to be honest. So, 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 <laughs> so we need we need something else. Like bullflation. I like. I don't know. Work on it. By the end of this Maybe. conversation, let's try and coin this term. You got it. Yeah, we got we got boomflation. We got bullflation. Kapowflation. Well, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of dashflations that we can throw out there, and I'll sort of have it on. I'll have that program running on background as we speak. Please do. I know you're capable of multiple cycles. <laughs> so let's <laughs> dig into uh, each of the pieces you just described. So you said headline unemployment reads as being quite low, but people have dropped out of the workforce. And one of the facts that I just saw reported that you retweeted actually was out of Ben Castleman, which is that we're still missing 4.2 million jobs since before the pandemic. A lot of that's in hospitality and leisure. So uh, so the, the first question is, um, what is going on with these 6 million or so people that have left the workforce? And how should we think about the labor market? Healthy, unhealthy? I think previously very unhealthy and getting healthier. 
I mean, we basically put the economy into a forced coma in April 2020. Uh, so we are coming from a flash freeze recession in the spring and early summer of last year, and we're coming out of it. We added more than 500,000 jobs last month. We, I mean, we, in we, any which was, time, that would be an absolute- Yeah, we, which was less jobs. than what a lot of people were hoping or projecting from way before. So in absolute terms, it's good, but it, 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 was it fair to say that people were hoping for better X months ago? Is that right? I think if you look at the three-month running average, we're getting a little bit technical here, but if you look at the three-month running average, right, like the general trend is a little bit slower than people were hoping, but last month's number was really, really strong, and I think we can continue to build on it as hopefully, fingers crossed, knocking on whatever wood is available, COVID fears continue to decline, vaccines continue to move through, boosters continue to improve the general level of antibodies, and we don't see the same spike in deaths uh, this uh, winter that we saw last winter. And there's a lot of reasons to believe that this winter, especially into early spring, we're going to have a really healthy labor market. Lots of job growth, and not just job growth. Andrew, this is something I know that you're interested in. Um, if you look at wage growth, and where wage growth is the strongest, it's not at the top, thank God, it's not the middle, it's at the bottom. Wages are growing fastest for the low income, and they're growing fastest because uh, as leisure and hospitality comes back online, restaurants and uh, retailers are having to raise wages to keep people working there. Because otherwise, what are they doing? They're quitting. Great resignation. The most Americans on record just quit their jobs last month, and the period or the sector with the most job quits was accommodation food services, so hotels and restaurants and bars. Um, you put all this together, and my brief summary is, Things were really bad last year. They are getting better for sure. They are getting better a little bit slower than we were hoping. And they're getting better with this other asterisk, which is inflation is higher than we expected that it would be, in part because supply chains are too constricted to provide for all the demand that's coming from the US economy. So to the extent that there is still pain or lag in the economy, uh, and we're, we're going to try to unpack this great resignation, which is on everyone's minds. Anytime you go out to eat uh, or to shop, you see help wanted signs everywhere. Uh, you know, people are like, hey, you know, jobs available, come come uh, apply. Um, I, and I believe that's one of the reasons why we're seeing wages go up at the low end is people are like, well, and people aren't applying to jobs. It's just like, you know, I guess we're gonna have to raise our wages. Someone said uh, in an article, employers think that 15 bucks an hour is a lot of money until they find out that's what McDonald's is offering. <laughs> mm -hmm. and so there is this baseline that's coming up. Uh, so the folks that have left those jobs uh, and are kind of waiting to be enticed back in, how are they able to make ends meet? Do we have a sense? Is it because they received enhanced unemployment benefits uh, before and haven't most of those programs at this point uh, stopped uh, applying to the same level? I think this is a really good question. It's a little bit of a mystery to me why we see such a large labor force dropout. Like six to seven million jobs or people looking for jobs. That is a lot. That's basically the labor force of Pennsylvania that we're missing from the economy, even though overall GDP is basically higher than it was before the pandemic started. Like that is definitely a mystery that I don't wanna pretend I have 100% of the answer to. But if you're gonna to piece together an answer, it's pretty clear to me where the pieces start. They start with savings that people have from last year because they weren't going on trips. They weren't doing special stuff because the economy was shut down. It comes from the stimulus checks, obviously, as you said. It comes from enhanced unemployment benefits, as you said. Um, 
you piece it all together and I can sort of begin to see why you, uh, how you have this sort of financial cushion. Um, but then you move away from, fin from financial cushions and you also have COVID, right? People might still be afraid of catching this in a restaurant or in a hotel. So they're not applying to those jobs. Uh, you might also have the fact that because schools are still a little bit messed up, you have moms and dads who don't want to leave the house. They want to stay home and be there in case their kid has to be forced out of school in case, you know, school is shut down for a week because there's a COVID case or two. Uh, so there, there are a bunch of different health and economic and psychological reasons why people are sort of holding out from the economy. And I think if you piece it all together, you have the basis of an explanation for the, this, this labor shortage mystery. I think a lot of it's burnout. I think a lot of it's mental fatigue. These are like some of the folks I talked to just were like, screw this and went, went home and then have just been figuring it out. Uh, and um, I see this in a variety of fields. I just saw a piece about how healthcare workers are burning out, which we all understand, but it, it's not just in that industry. It seems like it's all over. There's been a lot of rethinking. I almost feel like we had this very uh, strict conditioning that then got broken during COVID. And now mm -hmm. when you say to folks, hey, you know, do what you've always done, a lot of people are very, very hesitant and trying to figure out a new path. A lot of people moved. You know, I've seen the relocation rates uh, have been significantly higher than normal, which we can talk a little bit about when we talk about whether remote work is here to stay and what the heck that means. <laughs> but so, yeah. so your characterization of the labor market is like, hey, it's been really, really sick, but it's getting better. And, and we're not sure about some of the, um, the, adjustments because you know like the 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 fact is that there are a few different pieces to it yeah, that's right. I mean, I think you you mentioned two things I think are really important to talk about a little bit more. One is the fact that people are reassessing exactly what the role of work should be in their life. they're they're burning out of their jobs. they're taking some time to rethink their career or rethink, uh, you know, what they're going to do for a living. Um, and I don't think that's entirely a bad thing. In, in large part, I think the great resignation is for workers great. It's wonderful that people can have an opportunity to make that calculation. I mean, in an economy, let's imagine some, some sort of Earth-2 American economy, which isn't so different maybe than, than Earth-1, where a lot of Americans feel like they don't have the opportunity to quit if they're burned out. They don't have the opportunity to quit if they feel like they just don't want to do their job anymore. They have to work or they're going to starve and their family will starve. That's not a world that I want. It's not a world that I know it's not a world that you want, especially yeah, if you're true. just in UBI. Um, but fortunately, with, the, with, this, with these checks and the savings and unemployment and expanded unemployment benefits, I think people do have this freedom to have you know, a great reset. And then in addition to the great reset, you also have this great reshuffling. You have people moving more than they used to. We had declining migration in the US, declining sort of intercity yeah. and interstate migration in the US, I think since the 1970s. It was a pretty long period of declining mojo in this country. And in the last two years, people are moving more. They're moving to the suburbs of metros they live in. They're moving between cities. I think that's a good thing too. I think that, you know, I, I want an economy where people don't feel so precarious and so desperate to work that they can't experiment a little bit in their life. They can't move to a city to check it out, try it, try on a job and quit if they don't like it and explore the skills that work best for them and then figure out which one is their favorite and jump all into a career there. I want people to feel that sense of exploration. And you need a little bit, I think, of, of economic safety net laying in order for people to experiment. Um, we've laid a lot of net in the last uh, in the last year and a half. And as a result, I think you're seeing uh, a, a healthy amount of experimentation.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You know, when you said it's like the population of Pennsylvania disappearing from the workforce, I thought of a bad M. Night Shyamalan movie. It was like The Happening, <laughs> The Great Resignation by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I used to love that guy's movies. Um, you know, we sort of hit. Yeah, and, long, until he made horror movies that were about. Uh, right, I, I, I believe is the is the happening the one where spoiler alert it was the trees. Yeah, that was the trees one. The Mark Wahlberg, uh, Zoe Deschanel, the a little bit yeah. before she became like a you know a huge star. I think she was sort of a, an up and comer at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there is an optimistic way to look at folks moving and and having a, a chance to reset. Uh, I feel like a lot of people right now are in the figuring it out mode and it's kind of too early to tell whether it's going to be an awesome thing or, or a less awesome thing. Um, certainly I'm doing this podcast from New York city and New York city uh, emptied out to a significant, significant extent. And then like a lot of people have come back, but the offices aren't fully open. The last number I saw was that maybe 20 something percent are hybrid now and 8% are back in the office five days a week uh, here in, in New York City. That's very low. Um, certainly the stuff I'm hearing from various technology companies is they pulled their workers and said, what do you want to do? Their workers said, work remotely. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and then the firms then said, okay, how about come into the office two days a week? And then... Um, there's been some hemming and hawing <laughs> and a certain proportion of workers have done that. And firms are scared because if they were to be hard asses, they're afraid that people would jet. Um, and, and one of the tough dynamics is that the most confident employable workers are the ones who will feel the most uh flexible in ditching you for another company because they're like, yeah, I can just go, you know, across the figurative street <laughs> and get employed uh, by someone else. So those, these are exactly the people you don't want to lose. So, so you have been bending over backwards and saying people can work remotely. Is this consistent with the stuff you've been hearing? And do we think that remote work is here to stay? And then what does that mean? Like, are we happy about that? I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are happy about that. I think it's absolutely here to stay. I think it's important to be clear about who 
it's here to stay for, right? So white collar workers are already a minority of the workforce and those that can or are already working remotely uh, are also a minority of that minority, right? So it's not a it's not a huge number of people relative to the overall economy that are yeah. working remotely, but it's still millions and millions of people. And my whole thing in remote work when I'm having conversations uh, about it, and I've been doing a lot of writing and thinking about it, is the theme here is small changes can have big effects. Small changes can have big effects. Let's just assume that only say 10 to 20% of white collar workers, knowledge workers, right? Media, marketing, uh, stuff you can do with a computer. Let's assume it's only 10, 20% of them continue to work remotely for the foreseeable future. On the one hand, that means 80% of them are going back to the office for the most part, right? So some people are gonna say, oh look, remote work, it failed. But the 10 to 20% difference is huge. If Let's say you live in New York. If New York subway ticket uh, sales decline by, let's say, you know, seven to twelve percent, that is potentially devastating for the city of New York. If you have offices that are 20, per, always twenty percent at least, and, and empty by the by the way, you're you're day. kind of you know like you're being very very conservative in these estimates. I mean, because right now it's actually reversed, yes. where the offices are are twenty percent occupied and eighty percent unoccupied. But continue. You're exactly right. I, I'm, 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 I'm starting with the conservative take and trying to prove just how dramatic even the conservative take is. Exactly what you said. So let's say the offices are, are 20, 30, 40% empty for the foreseeable future. That's massive, massive. for consumer rents, yeah. for, for, for commercial rents. That's a massive deal for businesses in downtown urban areas that benefit from all of the work lunches that are sold yep. when the offices are filled or all the window shopping that people yep. do when they are walking between offices on their way to work. So my big thing here again is small changes can have big effects. The spillover effects of a 10% remote work revolution could be absolutely mad. Yeah, and you're, you're seeing a much more significant uh, percentage than that in a lot of places. And I will say I walked New York's Fifth Avenue the other day, uh, a lot of the stores are now opening in, so that's good. Um, there are some storefronts that have been clearly refurbished and invested in, um, but the crowd size is lower than it has been. It's almost entirely tourists. There's still a lot of hmm. empty, blackened out re retail storefronts. Uh, and so you can see, uh, the ongoing impact in a place like New York, most clearly the folks I know who have been working remotely for the most part are still uh, either working remotely or back in the office 40% of the time. And you saw this massive repricing of a lot of suburbs and exurbs here in New York. Uh, here in the city, you haven't seen a collapse in, in prices. Rents did come back. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, there, there is still a shoe to drop, you feel, because people still don't know what the new equilibrium is. And when I was running for mayor, I was making a case for a continuation of uh, the centrality of urban downtowns and corridors. Now that I'm not running for mayor, <laughs> like, you know, I can look up and be like, oh, you know, I, I see that there's been a massive uh, migration uh, and work culture shift that does seem like it's here to stay. Um, does that, does this mean tough times for densely populated air populated areas relative to lower cost uh, suburbs, exurbs? There, there are all these stories on the internet that I think are driven somewhat by frankly, um, you know, 
young person journalistic bias about people just moving to the woods or moving to Boise or whatever it is. <laughs> so, but, but what are the facts showing in terms of uh, a real uh, reallocation of energy, uh, human capital, uh, workforces to less densely populated areas? Yeah, this is a great complicated question. Let me try to answer in an organized way. So let's begin with research. Um, Nicholas Bloom, who's an economist at Stanford, published this really interesting research at the end of 2020 about what he called the donut effect. And the donut effect is this idea that in many rich metros, real estate prices grew at the sort of outer suburbs of the metro and they declined in the middle. So if you were going to draw a graph of where, re of where real estate prices grew, you would be drawing essentially a donut around the downtown area, right? That was by, at the end of 2020. I think right now, if you look at a lot of downtown areas, you know, I was recently in Tribeca in New York and it felt, it felt uh, pretty bumping. Um, I think you're starting to see people come back. Uh, New York just saw uh, the, the highest rent increase in the city's history last month. I believe it was something like 18% year over year uh, in, in, in just the last month. So people are clearly moving back to New York enough that they're demanding that, you know, enough that their their demand is pushing up, um, pu pushing up rents in the urban core. Um, but I do think that to a certain extent, if you take the remote work thesis seriously, which I obviously do, it's going to be a little bit complicated for some of these dense, rich, downtown areas like San Francisco and New York and Washington, D.C., because there's lots of reasons to live in these cities. There's so much fun. The restaurants are amazing. The culture is fantastic. But one of them is I'm willing to pay a leg and an arm for rent because my job forces me to be here. And if you yeah, you're going to get better away, economic opportunities being there. You know, it's like your proximity. And then uh, you can talk yourself into it because you're like, well, my, by my being here, uh, you know, I'll get that many times over in terms of even my uh, career opportunities. Exactly. You just take that away and it means that everything else on the menu for where you want to live in a city, right? H housing prices and commute length and um, how large your house is and the restaurants and proximity to family, all those other things can suddenly be really, really meaningful. So I just think a lot of people at the margin are gonna make a determination that they don't need to live in downtown areas, whereas previously in the 2018, 2019 world, they thought that they did. And that's going to mean that there's a second and third tier of cities that's going to grow faster than it would in an alternate reality where there was no pandemic pulse that taught us all these lessons about remote work. So. Upshot, my theory here is I don't think that San Francisco is done. I don't think New York is done. Washington, D.C. is done. But I do think I do think you, you should be bullish on the second and third tier of cities throughout the country because more Americans that otherwise were tethered to their jobs in San Francisco and New York are going to realize, especially in their 30s, uh, I can kind of move to another city if I really want to. Um, and they're going to do it. Derek, you know what this means you should start? What a REIT that right goes here? around buying all of this real estate in second tier cities. <laughs> this is why you're the business guy and I'm the journalist. Uh, I, I make the meager journalist salaries and um, you're, you're thinking like an investor. I, I agree. And I'm sure that, you know, the, you know, the, your, your Black Rocks and Blackstones and um, other financial uh, institutions that have the word black in them um, are all looking at opportunities to, to get into buying in, in second and third tier cities. It is a sure sign of multi-billion dollar success if your investment firm has uh, black one word titles. So black sword, black shield, just waiting for us. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, Derek, you, you and me, <laughs> you know, we've already <laughs> identified it. So you referenced something about age, 30s, family, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, I, so how old are you? <laughs> this was, so I'm 35. All right. So check it out. Uh, like I moved to the city when I was 21, straight out of college. And, and you would put up with all sorts of nonsense in your 20s. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like being here, you're at a sweet spot when you're 35. Like you have friends who are now starting to... Uh, have families and, and ditch the city. You live in D.C., is that right? I do. I live in downtown Washington, D.C. Yeah, so you're at the sweet spot where there are a bunch of folks who could go either direction. You know what I mean? I, I feel like young people still flock to cities just because it's like, oh, you know, you got to have something to do on Thursday night and Friday night and, you know, meet people and the rest of it. And so that they're back where I was when you just put up with any nonsense. (laughs) 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 You know, like live on top of each other, shoebox, like crazy roommate stories, whatever. It's like all part of the, um, you know, the rites of passage. Uh, Whereas after you have a partner, maybe a dog, maybe a child, then it's like, wait a minute, what's going on? What am I doing? Uh, and I, I think that's the population that cities have to be concerned about. Certainly, I know a lot of families who left New York City. And I will say that the families that have left New York City, not many of them are clamoring to come back. <laughs> it's like, like I talked to a friend the other day who moved to Connecticut and he's like, dude, like, you know, Connecticut's the bomb. He was like, talk, trying to talk me into Connecticut. <laughs> so so I'm wondering, since you're 35, like, what are you seeing and hearing from within your own network? Oh yeah, I, I have, it, it honestly spans, it, it runs the gamut. Uh, I've got friends who are just like your friends moving to Connecticut, who are moving out of the city, moving out of the, the New Yorks and San Francisco's and into the suburbs, like you know, moving to New, Jer- New Jersey and places like that. I also have friends who live uh, in downtown areas that they, they love cities and they kind of want to stay. Um, you know, at 35, you know, my friend's kids are pretty young. And as a result, you know, they're, they're not necessarily in kindergarten, first grade. Uh, and I think it makes it a little bit easier to stay in a city at that point. Um, but I grew up in a suburb. I love cities, but can totally see myself moving to the suburbs. And in many cases, you can kind of think that like what the pandemic has done is it's just like accelerated life for a lot of people. Like a lot of people that might have said, I'm going to live in New York for five years or, you know, moved out six months into the pandemic. Um, and people, you know, like other friends of mine who were thinking, you know, I'm going to, um, uh, moved to the suburbs in in the next decade, they said, you know what, I might as well take this opportunity right now because I'd love to sort of have a lawn uh, or something. So I, I think that I think that you know my my friends are are relatively uh, conventional millennials in the respect that they uh, uh, they have lived in a city uh, for their twenties and early thirties, um, and they are eyeing the suburbs for their thirties and forties. So for the kind of work you do, did you think about it? Because, you know, you're a journalist, a podcaster. You could theoretically have decamped to wherever the heck. <laughs> like was it, or, or is it the case that as a journalist, being in a place like D.C. is still super helpful? Yeah, being in D.C. is helpful. Um, I also know a lot of people in D.C. I'm from the D.C. area, uh, so friends and family here. I think... Um, you're saying people uh, would miss you, Derek? You're saying you had I to do stay think people would to, miss, to yeah, keep the, right. the morale up? Yes, exactly. Of the greater metro area. I'm staying for them. Um, My feeling is I'm just not in a rush. Uh, 
I, I know that uh, me living in the suburbs is something that's eventually going to happen, whether it's in the like, <laughs> 50s or eventually. Like, well, I'm, so I'm fatalistic, kind of guy, Derek. It's like... <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who, you know, look, I, I, I listen to Coldplay and Britpop. I like lawns um, and I'm a boring in-house inside cat. So like, I, I know that eventually all of these sort of cultural preferences in my life will eventually lead me to the suburbs. And I just feel no need to rush it. Um, I, I like the city as long as I live here. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Derek Thompson, work from home is here to stay. Uh, that, that's something that uh, he's thinking deeply about. And so what does that mean for... Uh, organizations. You're saying, look, second tier cities are probably going to have um, some new people, which I agree with. Uh, You're going to see a bit less centralization uh, of talent and human capital and organizational energy. I do get the sense that a lot of the big orgs are shrugging and saying, all right, you want to live there? I guess we'll we'll work with that. Like they're they're losing that particular tug of war. Um, How do you feel about the continuation of remote work. Are you positive, negative, neutral? I talked to a lot of people who are negative on it, just to share that, where people who run organizations, unhappy (laughs) people, obviously people who, for example, run restaurants and retail establishments in some of these areas, unhappy. Like, how do you feel about it? I think that it depends on who you talk to. And there's a bunch of different sort of spectra that you can look at, right? So one of them is a psychological spectrum. Uh, introverts versus extroverts. The introverts. Wow, know, you're getting deep here, Derek. Wow, I'm continue. Start, I'm, I'm starting here. I'm starting here. So, like, the introverts that I know are so, so happy with remote work. Like, they go to the office, and what do they experience in the office? People are constantly trying to talk to them, they're constantly trying to so People are always yelling at them and bullying them, you know, just being like freaking introvert and then like taking their. 
their trapper keepers and throwing them on the ground? Is that the way it's going all down? All of this, all of this, yes. And so they're thinking like, it is so much more calm and happy when I'm at home. Like my mental health has never been better. So they're obviously happy to stay home and not commute into an office where they can be you know, assaulted with um, impromptu conversation. At the same time, the extroverts- <laughs> Assaulted with impromptu friendliness. <laughs> Definitely talking to an extrovert right now. Um, I, I would consider myself somewhere in the middle. I, look, I, and I should also say, like for for the the Briggs Meyer doubt. Well, you, you there, I mean, you've I written books, so you're probably an introvert. That's like a general thing. Rule of mind is like if someone had the patience to sit there and write a book, they're probably introverted. But continue. You've written you've written twice as many books as I have, sir. So um, I don't know if you would consider yourself an introvert. I am an introvert. Anyone who who yeah. saw me as a kid would know. I'd just be sitting under a tree reading some Dragonlance novel. You know, it wasn't exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the, the extroverts I know in my life are like, get me back to the office. Like I get, I get confidence and power and feel good about myself when I'm talking to people. So that, that's, that's no that's one to lord it over it. in their house. They just start yelling at their dog being yep. like, listen to me. I have thoughts. But speaking of you know, lording <laughs> thoughts over your dog, I, I also think that another spectrum that's important is like, um, like lower level employees, mid-level employees and managers, right? So I yep. think managers want to get back into the office I, I, for the okay. most part in, in my experience. Like they, they enjoy managing people in like a live setting. People that are kind of advanced in their career but not managers, they're happy to work from anywhere. Like they're really, really happy to have that freedom to not have the commute. Younger workers... I think feel often like they're missing out on culture if culture to them is just a group slack. If it's just like if the office just becomes a group text, that's not an office. That's a group text. And so I think that for some like younger employees, they aren't getting necessarily the cultural experience that they want. So I think it cuts a lot of different ways. And, you know, remote work is one of these things that I sometimes compare to like like food, like it's ridiculous to say that food is good or bad. Some food is good for some people some of the time. And that's what we're going to see with remote work, that it's it's going to be this unevenly distributed thing that works for some people and not for others. And it's going to be particularly difficult, I think, for CEOs who are managing large companies that have a wide spectrum of psychological profiles, introverts and extroverts, a wide spectrum of workers, young, middle-aged and old, that's where the where the the you know what's really going to hit the fan because I think it's just going to be really difficult um to 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 uh, find I, a solution that works for everybody. Well, I'm really with you, Derek, and that the people that I feel bad for are the young workers who are coming up. Cuz if you just came out of school and you were trying to figure out how to prove yourself in an organization, uh it's I think it's just harder or or to get a sense as to how to manage people also probably harder because, you know, you aspire to try and become that manager at some point. I'm going to share something. There is a 20 something year old in my life, uh, you know, like a uh, family member who's been working from home and I think is getting depressed as a result. Um, now, if you were to ask this person, hey, would you prefer remote work or going into the office? They would say remote work. Um, now, do I think that the remote work is getting them pumped up uh, on a day-to-day -day basis or even developing them professionally? Not really. Um, but if you ask them their preference, they still would say, well, I prefer working in my sweatpants to having to commute, like get dressed, go to the office, like do this thing, interact with those horrible other people face-to-face, -face, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Like, you know, if, if you uh, leave it up to them. Um, but I'm not sure that 
their preference actually matches up to what would help their uh, career over the medium term or even their day-to-day happiness. Uh, like, uh, and I, I'm, you know, it's like I'm somewhere in this zone too, where like if you're an advanced professional, you can work from anywhere and you have a family like I do, then, you know, it's like it, it becomes very, very appealing to say, yeah, let me just beam in. Um, but, but I do feel for that next generation. What you're pointing to is something that the, uh, the psychologist Dan Gilbert has called miswanting. He has a book called Stumbling on Happiness about just various ways of thinking about our eternal search for permanent happiness, which will never actually happen, but that's what makes it so fascinating to think about. And this term miswanting refers to the fact that lots of people seem to tell themselves or tell pollsters or tell their family members that um, they want a particular thing that actually makes them miserable over the long haul. So I, for example, have a friend who has a, a theory about rich people. And he says, I think rich people buy loneliness with their money too often. That what happens when you get really rich, you might buy the private jet. Okay, that makes sense. Like no one likes flying in coach. if They can fly in first class on a private jet. But they buy a big house maybe in the middle of nowhere. And they'll buy, you know, a pied-a-terre um, in a city, and they don't really want to talk to people, so they'll find various ways to, to make sure they never have to, to speak to people outside of their network. And they'll design this perfectly insulated life that guarantees that they aren't, um, what did I say, assaulted by impromptu conversation by the unwashed masses. And as a result, they'll feel like they're missing something. They'll feel an aspect of isolation. And so they are miswanting a, a feeling of eliteness that is actually conducive to loneliness. And so here you have examples on, I guess, either end of the economic spectrum. And obviously, miswanting is not just something that happens to elites. I think it happens to all of us. Um, you know, the, the Sunday afternoon that, that one spends um, watching eight hours of Netflix and then reflecting back that, huh, I kind of wish I didn't spend eight hours inside. It would have been nice to have taken a walk. You, you miswanted to that, that binge to a certain extent. Um, I do think that- Much that to Netflix's delight. <laughs> much to their delight, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, I do think there's something rather rather profound about the about the phenomenon of miswanting, and it's possible that a lot of us, you know, miswants a lot of conveniences of sort of internet. It's just friction, life. man. If you ask anyone, like, hey, do you want friction? Be like, hell no. And you know, yeah. a commute's friction. Other people are friction. The office is friction. Um, but it turns out that some degree of friction is probably healthy. You know, there are people that are trying to discipline themselves in social media and they like, you know, take the app off their phone so they can't just freaking pull it up. They have to go through a browser and some other stuff. Uh, you know, it's like sometimes you introduce friction, um, but you can sell frictionlessness to just about anyone and say, hey, do you want to buy it? And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that relates to the isolation factor, too. It's like, are the people suck? Do you want to like, you know, buy the gate? Be like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're a super villain. Do you want the floating hideout where no one can come assault you with their faces? <laughs> um, so it's, you know, it's something that uh, that I think we're seeing in, in different ways is just so there's some friction that we probably wanted. That, that'd be my case. And, and that might include some elements of the in-person office experience. Yeah, the... Um the Columbia professor Tim Wu has written about this, uh, that there are certain ways that the uh, tech consumer economy 
can be so perfectly frictionless that it can uh, remove some of the sort of the, the, the small inconvenient beauties that are just a, a, a part of life. And sometimes I find that to be too much of a traditionalist argument, but sometimes I think it's kind of right. Like, I think he was, he wrote this article for the New York Times about um, like the joy of, of wandering through an antique shop, not knowing what you want. That now, if you want something, what you're supposed to do is that, That's some funny, dirty shit out of Tim. What the hell is that about? <laughs> like you had to choose an antique store? I mean, at least my examples made sense. Come on, Tim. <laughs> I, I might be misquoting. I hope Tim doesn't get mad at me. Um, but Tim's now like something. a senior White House appointee. So this is the kind of leadership. So we're in DC. Yeah, exactly. Tim's, he's a, gonna, Tim's a really good, smart guy. Tim's a really good, he's smart gonna, guy. He's going to stick the FTC on me. Um, but yeah, he was pointing out that today you want something and you just type it into your phone um, and you don't experience the friction of uh, of, of looking for it, um, of, of having a, an exploratory experience, I suppose you could say. And, or freaking and pen pals, man. Old enough to remember that shit where it takes like a week to get the letter. Like that was, yeah. you know, anyway. <laughs> right. And I don't want this to be too, I don't want it to become too fuddy-duddy. Fuddy like, I'm a huge fan of technology. I'm a huge fan of the friction points that have been eliminated um, by a lot of these companies. But clearly, like, there is there is something that is wrong. We all, we all, we all feel it, I think, in our bones, and we can sometimes see it, literally, in, this, in the statistics. There is something wrong with a life that is overly mediated by our phones, or that is overly mediated by these technologies designed to produce streams of frictionlessness. You had this graph in, in your book um, of the coincidence of the rise of teenage anxiety and depression with the mainstreaming of the smartphone. This is something Jonathan Haidt has written about, psychologists at NYU, a bunch of other people are on this. Instagram is even found in its own internal surveys uh, that Shocker. have this effect. Yep. Shocker, Facebook knew, Facebook knew. Sorry, go ahead, continue. <laughs> well, it, and they're just, I, I, do, I do see this all as, you know, the, all of these stories as being a part of the same mega story um, that tech is, is awesome. Um, and every, and these, these apps are, are wondrous in so many ways. Um, but there is something that seemed to be removing from our lives. Humanity, brother. We freaking miss that humanity action, you know? You gotta walk walk down the street and find your friend as opposed to seeing their best moments on your phone and thus screwing with your mind. <laughs> yeah, I, you, you and I are aligned on that point for sure. Um, you recently uh, amplified an idea that scared the shit out of me. Um, and I uh -oh. want to share it with everyone. It's not your idea. Oh, maybe it is. Well, I'll just share it. Um, so there was a recent consumer confidence survey that said that 87% of Democrats think the economy is good <laughs> or like positive sentiment, while only 37% of Republicans did. And you noted that this was the largest gulf in terms of perception of the economic trajectory between parties that you had ever seen, 50%. But then even more troubling is that this wasn't only on one side or, or the other, that back in 2019, the Gulf actually cut the other direction, where Republicans thought the economy was great and Democrats thought it sucked by a margin of 47%. And so this is something that scared the shit out of me because what it showed was that, hey, it turns out there is no objective reality to the way we experience the economy. And it's just that if my party is in power, I'm going to be more likely to think good things than if the other party's in power. Uh, I think that's the point you were making uh, by by uh, retweeting this. Is that right? 
I absolutely agree that that is the clear takeaway. Um, just to do, I do a half step back to, to, to set it up because I think that the, the historical change is really important. So the University of Michigan has been doing this consumer survey for like 60, 70 years. They basically ask a bunch of people, how do you think the economy is going? And since the 1980s, they've been breaking it down, Democrat, Republican, independent, right? Between 1980 and 2017, there had never been more than a 30-point gap between the way Democrats and Republicans saw the economy, right? Democrats and Republicans, more or less, were co-occupants of reality, right? They were experiencing something that we could, that they could agree Good on. Times. Good times. Good times. We were in the same place, the same economy. And since 2017, it's just gone completely berserk. That if a Republican is, is the president, just about other Republicans say the economy is great, and a lot of the Democrats say the economy is bad. And then when a Democrat is president, all the Democrats say that the economy is good, and all the Republicans say the economy is bad. That's only a slight exaggeration, but that's basically what we started to see. And it basically means exactly what you said, that we used to partially decide whether or not we thought our party was doing a good job by first looking to the economy. But now we decide if the economy is good by first looking to the party that's in power. Ideology is the pair of glasses that everybody is wearing. And as a result, you might not as well even ask people how good the economy is. You might as well just tell them, hey, do you like Biden or not? Because once, once I hear the answer to that question, everything else that I ask you about reality will simply flow downstream of that comment. And it just goes to this point, which again, you write about in your book, and I have a couple questions about your book, that I, which I thought was really, really interesting, which is that polarization has just eaten up American democracy. And I don't, I don't know what the path out of it is. You have started to hoe your specific path out of it, which is forming a third party. Um, but man, it is so hard to be a political optimist when we don't share the same reality on a question as simple as how is the economy? Yeah, I thought that was very profound and frightening that it's veered so sharply uh, into the ideological zone. Uh, you wrote recently that Democrats are getting crushed in what you call the vibes war, <laughs> which I think was, by the way, correct. Uh, I think they underestimate the fact that there is a vibes war and uh, that going back and forth within your own party was a bad look. Um, some of the things I don't genuinely find them that, you know, like I, I think that we're at a point in American history where politicians regularly take blame for stuff they had nothing to do with. <laughs> they also take credit for things they had nothing to do with. Um, so, so some of the vibes war uh, is out of their control. Um, but some of it has been, um, and it, it is really, really hard to see what the path forward can look like because you're going to make an argument now on the infrastructure bill, which, by the way, I, I love, and you know, I think that the Republicans who voted for it were doing the right thing, and the fact that they're getting attacked for it now for political and ideological reasons is terrible. Um, but the, the toughest part then is that the entire foundation of the argument you make, which is, look, we passed this bill; it's been good for you in terms of roads and jobs and economic activity, people will be like, yeah, I don't care about any of that. Like, you know, like I just care about um, the reality as it's presented to me by my favorite news channel or favorite <laughs> commentators. And then they can tell me how to feel about what's going on on the ground. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Yeah, this is where I really wanted to talk to you, actually. Um, so uh, you have, am I allowed to, is this is this horrifyingly embarrassing for me if I read to you from your own book? That not, very much not allowed. <laughs> okay. All right, so um, page 249. Um, I think this is a really, really profound point. You write in the book, Open Versus Closed, political science book, um, a bunch of political psychologists ask, resp- ask responders to talk about, um, to respond to various, various opinions. They found that disengaged citizens had less of a fixed political identity based upon their psychological profile. They were more pragmatic and practical when presented with a question. They reacted to a policy by trying to answer, what will this policy do for me? Meanwhile, those who were more politically attentive we're more likely to try to answer, what will supporting this policy say about me? They were joining a group. What's so interesting about this observation is that you would think that people who were engaged with politics might be thinking economically, but they're not at all. The people disengaged with politics are thinking economically, and the people engaged with politics are thinking culturally. And as more of America becomes more politically engaged, this might be another uh, scare the shit out of you moment, Andrew. As more of America becomes politically engaged, this research suggests that the future of politics is a culture war, not a what will this policy do for me, not a what will Biden do for the broken road and the broken bridge and the bad broadband in my zip code, but rather what does it mean to my Facebook group, to my neighborhood Bible study group, if I support this president's bill. That is terrifying that the future of politics is so post-material and so cultural that storytelling essentially uh, subsumes actual policy details. Politics has become content, Derek. Uh, I'm very, very scared of it too. And what you characterize as a vibes war is not the aside, it's actually the center. <laughs> it's actually, hey, let, let's like engage in a vibes war and like see who can convince 50.1% of the population that, uh, you know, we're, we're on track. Um, I, I also was very moved by that research. And uh, I referenced Jonathan Haidt uh, fairly heavily. I referenced Ezra Klein fairly heavily. Like some of their insights were what led me to head this direction and start the forward party because I looked up and was like, okay, if it really is just going to come down to tribalism and not whether I can demonstrate that my policies are going to help you, then where does that lead? And it leads to, by the way, Civil War 2.0. And then what is the path out? And the path out to me is one to start a unifying positive political tribe, but also to try and break up the two tribes so that there are, <laughs> there are like five, six or seven tribes. And then in, in that landscape, then if you have these relatively ideological communications lanes, at least you're not going to get 50% of people, you know, like I can inflame a certain segment, which by the way, would also lead to something that I imagine you're for, which is a much more uh, diverse 
uh, media landscape where it's not that you have an apparatus that's just augmenting the Republican point of view and talking points and then the, uh, like, uh, you know, the Democrat, but that there's some other universe. And I would say that you're one of actually the leaders of this universe, which is you try and find objective reality. <laughs> you try to like present it to people in this way. It'd be like reality based journalism, which, you know, a lot of journalists right now imagine that they're practicing, but, uh, but it, it, I'm not sure they are. That, that that's you are. I'm going to say this. That's a high compliment coming from me. I, I really appreciate that. I, I really do. Um, I, I sincerely appreciate that. I really do try to tell the truth. And um, it sounds ridiculous and uh, cliche to say that I want to tell the truth. But I, I really, really do. And a part of, I think, really wanting to tell the truth as an occupation means just downshifting rather dramatically what tribe or what corner of the political spectrum the truth seems to be coming from. So right now, for example, we've got inflation. Inflation's, inflation's here. It's really high in energy. It's pretty high in meat and poultry, and it's pretty high in car prices. Now, there are a lot of Republicans that are saying completely wrong things about inflation. Like, we're, why am I republic? Like, inflation is 20%. Like, we're about to spiral into, you know, a Germany- Venezuela territory and Venezuela. like, you know, yeah, That's yeah, all bullshit. A- Obviously, that's, that's complete bullshit. At the same time, I really do see a lot of liberals, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do both sides here. I'm just saying it's unfortunate the degree to which lots of people in the media now seem to be putting ideology over evidence. I see lots of liberals sort of poo-pooing the idea that anyone would care about inflation, that it's basically just a Republican PSYOP. It's like, it's not just a Republican PSYOP. The, like, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is telling you in its own words, this is the highest inflation rate in 30 years. Let's believe them. These are, these are nonpartisan economists believe reality. And I, I have found it, I, I do think that the, the fact that media has become so ideological is unfortunately downstream of the fact that media has become so abundant. We are like, you know, we're like plants in the jungle. We're like plants in a rainforest. We are diversifying and, and becoming specific and different because we need to do so to survive. And you're wow. seeing everyone feeling like they have to have an antagonistic relationship with the rest of media. Like how often do you hear, like people in the media say the media is broken? Well, of course they are because their job is to win an audience within the media consuming public that thinks that they are the only voice that's telling the truth. Like to a certain extent, someone could have accused me of doing this at the beginning of this answer, right? Like right is wrong, left is wrong, only I am telling the truth. I don't wanna say that. But at the same time, this is just, what I'm saying is the, the character of the media that you are observing is downstream of the media economy, which is so yeah. abundant that there are, and there's so many people clamoring for attention that we all have to tell, we all have to have some version of the same message. Everyone else is lying except for me. Come to me for the truth. (laughs) Come to me for the truth. Come to me for the truth and you will live. And and that does make it, I think, very difficult to to be non-ideological. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't have a, I, I wish I had a quick solution to that problem. Um, I, I, I frankly don't. I, I don't know if you see this the same way that I do. I see it exactly the same. Um, and I'm working on a solution, believe it or not, uh, in true Yangian fashion. <laughs> so, Tell me your solution. So, um, Let's talk about so, your solution. 
Oh, well, my solution, and there'll be more to come on this, uh, is to try to augment and properly resource independent voices that have developed a trusted following based upon some degree of loyalty and adherence to the truth. Uh, people like you, frankly, uh, you know, and I could throw out some other names. I'm just going to throw out a couple of names just so, so people have a sense of where I'm going with this. But like Crystal Ball and Sagar uh, and Jetty, they've developed a following as independent, trustworthy voices. Uh, I, I want to help make these voices the new uh, network, the new mainstream. And so I, I'm working on trying to make that happen. Uh, we'll see if, if I can be successful. Uh, certainly, I want to be a part of trying to give us a chance to come back and have a sense of reality and have a sense of accountability to the truth. And I don't see a way to do that without making it so that the resources and incentives are flowing in the right direction. Yeah. I think from a political perspective, I wonder how you see the challenge of winning the storytelling battle. You have this, um, you made this observation that you printed in the book. You said the Democratic Party, which with, I, I think you're, you're often politically aligned, but I do see the, why you're interested in forming a third party. You see, the Democratic Party has taken on this role of the urban coastal elites who are more concerned about policing various cultural issues than improving the working class's way of life that's been declining. Um, say a little bit more about, about that argument and what, what you disagree with the Democratic Party's approach to talking about cultural issues. Well, that quote's from a, a CNN clip that was pretty widely recirculated, but it was born in my experience talking to a waitress in a diner in Iowa uh, where I said, hey, you're running for president. And she said, oh, what party? And I said, Democrat. And then it's like I sprouted horns or a tail or turned purple or something. <laughs> so like that. The Democratic Party has really been coded in a certain way for a lot of people. And if you were generous, you would say, oh, it's because of, you know, Fox and conservative talk radio. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. Um, but it, it does seem to a lot of working class Americans that I met that the Democratic Party does not care about whether their lives are good or bad. Um, and that's a losing place to be if you're the Democratic Party, which theoretically is supposed to be, I thought, for the working class and the little guy and little gal. And so then the question is, well, what do these people think the Democratic Party is about? And they, they think it's about uh, language. They think it's about culture. They think it's about things that educated people in cities care about more than folks who are in Iowa or Indiana or New Hampshire. Uh, so... That, that was the critique I had and still do have. And, and to me, the goal should be to try and get policies across the finish line. And it doesn't matter what I call it. I mean, it's one reason why we called universal basic income the freedom dividend, um, because it tested better. And it tested better, frankly, with conservatives. <laughs> like I, I used to tell the story, Derek, where uh, everything tested about the same with people who were on the left. You called it universal basic income, prosperity, dividend, social security for all. It was all about the same. By the way, back then it wasn't that high. <laughs> to, I mean, it started out at 27% approval and now it's like 65. Um, but we called it the freedom dividend because it, it worked more with more people. And you have to ask yourself, it's like, why is it that Democrats uh, aren't able to make the, the same adjustment, which is so obvious. It's like, hey, if you talk about something in a certain way, they hate it. So it's like, maybe talk about it another way. And the Democratic stubbornness should, seems to be like, no, if if they aren't liking this, then then their ears are wrong <laughs> or, or their minds are wrong and they're not receptive enough to like the language I'm using. And by the way, they exacerbate that because they like change the language all the time. Like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm pretty hip and, and savvy to this stuff. It's like, even I have trouble keeping track of what, you know, like what the vocabulary is. 
<laughs> it's like trying to reach people where they are. So anyway, that, that, that was what my my point was. Yeah, right. No, so the, 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 the vocabulary that they use can be alienating. I can, I absolutely, I can absolutely see that. To what extent do you think universal basic income right now and popularity of UBI has been affected by the pandemic stimulus checks? Well, you see the appeal of universal basic income rising. And I got two main objections when I was on the trail. Number one is where are we going to get the money? And number two is uh, people aren't going to use it well. And now people realize we actually always had the money. And of the literally you know, 160 million Americans who've gotten some form of cash relief over this last number of months, they know how they spent it, which was on <laughs> food and fuel and car repairs and school supplies and the rest of it, or the folks who are continuously getting the child tax credit right now. So uh, because of lived experience, a lot of people are like, oh, like we really can do this. And oh, it doesn't turn uh, everyone into a different human being. <laughs> so um, so I, I feel like this time period has only accelerated the eventual adoption of UBI. Um, uh, and it, I think it's just going to continue to be become the policy solution as dozens of mayors around the country, including in some really big cities, are now launching various versions and pilots. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. There was an early objection to universal basic income that said it's going to change the way that people spend their money and spend their time. They're going to become lazy. They're not going to work. And instead, everything that I've read seems to point in the opposite direction. That in fact, what you have in the developing world, the sort of ascending developing world, is you have a lot of poverty traps. People, quote unquote, act poor, not because of biology, psychology, culture, because of money. They are in poverty traps. They, they need money, and if they had money, they could be unbelievably productive and happy. And, and I, I love the idea of, of, leading, of, of leading with UBI. Um, to what extent do you, is it still the centerpiece of, of the forward party? Um, is, it, is, it the, is this the core, is it the entree, um, or is it, um, are, there, are there other things that have joined the plate? Well, it's very much there, front and center. When you go to forwardparty.com, you see there are a number of core principles and universal basic incomes right there. Uh, I, you know, I'm frankly Mr. UBI, <laughs> so which I'm very proud of. You know, it's like having someone say to me on the street, like, "Hey, Yang!" Literally, I get thanked for people's cash relief checks. I mean, that's a pretty wonderful feeling. Um, so it, it's right there. What's interesting, Derek, is I ran for president thinking the problem was that people didn't know about UBI. And so I needed to uh, spread the idea. Uh, and now I think the problem is that our government isn't responsive to the will of uh, the average person. And so that's what the democracy reform elements of the forward party are about around open primaries and ranked choice voting. Uh, so if universal basic income is, for example, a solution or a vision, uh, now the forward party is about trying to make it a reality. And you could 
in my opinion, swap out any of a number of big things for universal basic income and it would fit in similarly. Uh, climate change, you know, and trying to address it. Like, uh, I think that's something that a lot of Americans are frustrated by our relative inaction. It, 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 like, our system right now is built for polarization, dysfunction, stagnation, frustration, eventual, you know, it's like you could you could put in just about any big po- policy goal. Negative Asian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like you can, it's like what uh, Francis Fukuyama called the uh, vitocracy. It's like, I, can, I can't do anything, but I can keep you from doing anything, um, which in a time of rapid change is terrible, you know, and then it's related to the gerontocracy, which uh, I, I talk about uh, a little bit. And, you know, some people aren't into the, the fact that I characterize it as such, but it really is. I mean, you know, we're probably careening towards a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024 uh, and their combined age will be 158. You know, it's like people can look up and be like, oh, my gosh, like we're doing this again. <laughs> it, it's it's not going to be fantastic. So let me let me assume that I am and this is not a, a huge or unrealistic assumption. Assume that I am exactly the demographic that you're trying to reach. I am mad at the gerontocracy and think that America's leaders are way too old. I'm mad at the vitocracy, Francis Fukuyama's vitocracy, and think it's way too difficult to build anything or do anything. The moonshots are over uh, and we don't have any ambitious plans uh, for government-funded technology anymore unless we're in a pandemic. Um, I want a government that is pro-tech and pro-science, but also pro-egalitarianism. I want us to care about people, um, and the UBI, I think, is is a wonderful way to express that care. All of this, I'm on your team. At the same time, I remember Ross Perot. I remember Ralph Nader. I know the history of third parties in America, and they can often cannibalize from the party, the party that you are most like. This, this has to be something that you've been asked and something that you've thought about a lot. How do you worry about that risk? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate all of the affinities you just expressed, Eric. It's super exciting. Uh, So there are a number of things I would say is that, number one, we have to figure out how we're going to transition from this broken down duopoly to something better and more effective. Uh, And the path there, in in my opinion, is just trying to make it so that independent points of view can come up, regardless of what those points of view are. Um, So uh, to me, the forward party is going to enable uh, a multi-party system by trying to make the system, frankly, not shut out anyone who's not uh, an R or a D. Um, If you want to get into brass tacks about some of the examples you even cited, Ross Perot led to Clinton winning. Uh, You know, I mean, he got 19.3% of the vote. Oh, I mean, Ross Um, Perot stole from, uh, as much from Republicans. Yeah, go ahead, though. Yeah, yeah, no. So, so it, it, and you could look at Andrew Yang and say, oh, like, you know, this, uh, this guy or like this party is naturally like more demi. Um, there are some facts that actually cut the other way where 42% of my supporters, when I was running as a Democrat in the Democratic presidential nomination, uh, said they weren't sure they were, they were going to support the Democratic nominee if it weren't me. Um, and so that's almost half at a time when, frankly, I had a big D next to my name everywhere I went. <laughs> like, like that, There were a lot of people I encountered on the trail were like, hey, Yang, uh, you know, would totally support him if he wasn't a Democrat. Uh, and if you look at the appetite for a third party right now, it's actually significantly higher among both independents and Republicans than it is among Democrats. So it's an empirical open question uh, where the energy would come from. The other thing is that uh, people that uh, tend to fast forward to just the presidential race, this 2024 question. Uh, and there are a lot of things we can do at the local level, at the state level, 
like we did in Alaska around, uh, I mean, I didn't do it like Alaska did <laughs> around switching to open primaries and ranked choice voting, um, which it, it's good for democracy. It's good for sanity and reasonableness to just have better incentives. So there are all of these things I would push people towards and say, look, even if you're concerned about, let's say the 2024 election, let's table that, do as much as we can uh, in the here and now, let's call it 22. And then if we are heading in a direction where you're like, uh oh, I'm concerned about empirically tipping the election in a direction I don't like, then we can examine it then. But we're nowhere near that point right now. I'm sympathetic to the argument. I think that, you know, we see internationally that countries that have first past the post electoral democracies do tend to become two party systems. And that's exactly what we have. And it's made it very, very difficult for third parties um, in, in the U.S. To, to get started. I would I would love a proliferation of parties. I think it would help so many surprising second order things like, for example, political polarization. If everyone can just sort themselves by saying I'm against or I'm for Joe Biden and I'm going to describe the economy that way and I'm going to see reality that way. It's it's too easy. It's 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 too easy, I think, to have that sort of, you know, head to head death match. But when partisanship is scrambled a little bit, when there are five parties, six parties, seven parties, then there's more of a competition to not just be against yes. something, but be for the right thing. Because everyone's against everything, but maybe you're maybe you're you're you you specialize and become for something for a really really um, uh, particularly persuasive argument. Uh, so I, I I love the idea. Right, right now, Derek, you can see the animating force for both parties yeah. is hating the other party. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, look, I think I think the book is really, really interesting. And um, uh, I I wanted the last question I wanted to ask you that was related to the book is, um, you know, you <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to run for president. You make this really funny comment that um, a lot of people think that only narcissists run for president. And uh, it may be true that. Most people that run for president are somewhat narcissistic, but the actual experience of running for president is just one humble pie after another. It's just this ego smashing exercise where one media beats up at you, uh, someone insults you. Uh, it's, it's, it just seemed really, really difficult. I wonder from that experience, like on the other end of the media equation, what you see as the political media's biggest flaws in this country. I think the political media's biggest flaw is that they feel themselves to be the arbiter of what narrative gets included and what does not. Uh, and I use in the book the example of Joe Sestak, who was a, an admiral in the Navy uh, and was eminently qualified to talk about certainly uh, foreign policy and defense related issues. And the media wouldn't give him the time of day because he wasn't, quote unquote, serious uh, I heard from any number of people. I, I had an interview with Barry Weiss the other day, and she said that New York Times journalists would regularly exclude me from coverage of a debate or the campaign. And when asked, hey, why not have Yang on there? They would say, like, Yang is not serious. Um, and then and then I, when I talked to Barry about it, I was like, hey, how does a reporter know whether I'm serious? And then the answer is other reporters. <laughs> Like, there's like a circularity um, going on. And so I, I, I wish that political media would just show up and be like, treat themselves like an alien, being like, okay, what, what's going on? Like, who's this? What's that? Um, the problem is that right now, a lot of journalists 
have pre-existing connections with folks who are already in office or who've been in politics for a long time. And so there'll be this continuous uh, treatment of certain people as um, more legitimate or worthy of consideration than others. And on my campaign, we talked all the time about how the media was trying to make a particular person a mm -hmm. thing. <laughs> you can almost see like the media kind of turn towards it. I don't think I, I you know, it's like, uh, I, I think that, um, we had like a very strange set of experiences when the media is concerned, but I, I wish that folks would, uh, would in some ways take themselves mm -hmm. less seriously. You know what I mean? Like, like, not like, Oh, if I, um, somehow expose my readers or viewers to this, then like, it, it's my signing off on them. It's like, look, just bring people on, uh, and let voters decide that there's some asymmetry in this too, Derek, where uh, I think that. Yeah, I think that one side is better than other than the other at trying to get out of the way. Um, so that, that would be my my thought on it. Uh, but I'm I'm glad you read and took an interest in that part of the book. Running for president certainly was a bizarre set of experiences. I don't think most people understand what it's like, and so I tried to uh, break it down in a way that most people could relate to, and hopefully. Find I thought it was so interesting how the the, the combination of what must be utterly exhilarating moments and utterly boring moments that, that you must, that you must go between that speaking in front of a crowd, being on primetime TV on a stage to audition to be the most powerful person in the world. Like that just must be an extraordinary thrill. And at the same time, because you are on the trail all the time, just the, tr the travel, the mind numbing hours of just going between, I'm sure wonderful cities, but like I'm exhausted when I fly across the country once, like to have that be your life for a year and a half just must be, totally enervating. And so I, I just, I just found that, that it, it opened my eyes to the fact that you must have, there must be really high highs followed by lows, followed by highs. And it must just really sort of churn your insides and, um, uh, be a really sort of psychologically discombobulating experience. Well, Derek, you just hope there are some really high highs, man. I mean, like the, the thing I, I, I compare my experience to is like a traveling <laughs> comedian where you show up to a town and then there's like a small group and then you give them your message or your stuff and then you hope that they like it. And then you literally come back to that town a number of months later and be like, you hope that the crowd is bigger. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so when you talk about like the high highs, none of the mm -hmm. highs were guaranteed on the Yang campaign. You know what I mean? You know, like there's no guarantee I'd be on that debate stage. There's no guarantee there'd be a crowd waiting for me. <laughs> it, it was it was all and there weren't crowds waiting for me to your point early on like i'd show up and there'd be nobody there and you know the people that were there would not take you seriously because you'd be like hey i'm running for president and they'd be like really uh you know like i i, I managed to run the gamut of experiences where one one thing that just pops to mind i attended the iowa state fair in 2018 i'd already declared and it was really really uh, punishing on, on a certain level because just no one cared. No one believed. Like I had a young idealistic staffer with me who like urged me to just like run up to people and like introduce myself. And I was like, look, I'm really not going to just like mess with other people's like trip to the fair just to like stick my face in theirs and be like, hey, I remember it's like, <laughs> like, like, let's just get some lemonade and, and a turkey leg and try and like act like human beings here. Uh, and then I came back to that same fair the following year and there was this phalanx of camera people around me and a video camera and the rest of it and people had heard of me because you know i'd, I'd 
uh, been on a debate stage or whatnot. Uh, and so, um, like the experience was different, uh, but there was no guarantee we'd ever get to the second version of it. You know what I mean? Like, so when you talk about like the highest high, it's like, it was just a grind for a long time. Um, and, and even in the headier days of the campaign, to your point, you would wake up in a Best Western and get up early and then do a local radio interview and then get back in the rental vehicle and just try and, you know, put your best foot forward. It must be, it must be exhausting. It's, it's exhausting to think about. I have one more question just about running for president. Um, and maybe it's a weird question. I don't know if you've been asked this before. Anything you do for a long time, you get better at. Like you don't have to go full 10,000 hours theory of Malcolm Gladwell to believe that as you do something for more hours, you tend to get a little bit better at it. What is this skill that you think you improved on the most running for president? Like the skill set of running for president to me is totally bewildering, but like you've done it. What, what are you better at now than you were four years ago? I am better at performing, Derek. Uh, and I think I referenced this in the book, um, but you do get reps. Uh, I hated these cable news appearances so much when you're staring at this red dot and you're pretending to have a compelling conversation with someone. I, even I thought to myself afterwards, I was like, it's not like I'd watch one of those cable news hits and be like, that guy should be president. <laughs> so, so I'd like turn to my team and be like, hey, do I even have to do these? They're so awful. Uh, and, and months later, when CNN actually signed me up as a contributor uh, and I was on air, I'd be like, I hated these. I suck at these. And now apparently like, I must not be that terrible because, uh, you know, News Network decided that they'd like more of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you ask like what I got better at. I got better at performing in different types of environments. I got better at staring at a news camera. I got better at talking to 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. I got better at trying to hold an arena. You know, and if you look online, like there were speeches I gave to arenas of uh, of sometimes, you know, like not Yang Yang, it'd be like random Democratic voters. Uh, and, and so you get these reps. And now uh, my wife jokes too. It's like, if I have a speaking gig now, like they'll throw me out. And in the spectrum of my performance, uh, you know, experience, it's like, okay, this group's like 500 people or whatever. It's like, you know, 500 yeah. people is not that big a deal. Whereas, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, rewound earlier and be like 500 people, that'd be incredible. That's, that's fascinating. Um, well, Andrew, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for um, having me on the podcast. 